Welcome to Space Strategy, a podcast from the American Foreign Policy Council's Space Policy Initiative, where we are shaping a vision for the next strategic frontier. Now here's your host, AFPC Senior Fellow in Defense Studies, Peter Gerritsen. Welcome to the Space Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Gerritsen, a Senior Fellow in Defense Studies with the American Foreign Policy Council. Today, my guest is Joel Sircell. Joel Sircell, PhD, is the founder and CEO of Trans Astronautica Corporation, Transastra, and the founding CTO of Momentus. Sircell is a world-recognized authority in technical innovation and space technology with a PhD from Caltech in microwave plasma propulsion and over three decades of success in engineering and leadership across multiple disciplines. A formal principal engineer and project manager at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for 15 years with with 15 years of entrepreneurial success, Sircell has a long history of leading first in space and advanced technology. He formulated the NSTAR project, which led to the first deep space application of ion propulsion on Dawn. Sircell is a five-time NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Fellow and a leading expert in how to harvest water from planetary bodies to use it for space transportation services. We're going to get into Joel's vision. So welcome, Joel. Well, it's a delight to be here. Thank you so much, Pete. Well, you're welcome. Well, although I read a a bit of your introduction, I'd like to hear from you. How do you describe what you do in your role in the space ecosystem? Hmm. How do I, my role in the space ecosystem? You know, I don't think about my role in the space ecosystem. I think about my role in terms of what I do on a day-to-day basis and how I can help move the agenda forward for the goals that I think are, are helpful. Um, and so, you know, what, what my role is, is to um, come up with innovative, well, come up with solutions to problems. Generally speaking, if the solution doesn't already exist, it has to be innovative. So I wind up working in that space a lot. Um, and then, when I come up with the solutions, then I try to um, work with builders to implement those solutions. And, and, and I tend to, and, and then the way to make those innovations happen is to surround myself with very talented, innovative people from different disciplines. Because, and then I, what I end up, what ends up happening most of the time is I get these smart people, typically much smarter than me in these different disciplines working together. And um, I'm able to knit their contributions together uh, to come up with something that's greater than the sum of its parts. And then, uh, and then we build a team to build it. So what are the problems and opportunities that are currently commanding your attention? Um, well, um, I spend most of my time thinking about space logistics these days. We founded Transastra back in 2015 to do the long range research to solve the massive and ultimate space logistics problem, which is harvesting the resources of the asteroids and distributing those resources first in space and then someday back to the earth. Um, so Transastra was, you know, people think of Transastra as an asteroid mining company. And the reason for that is because 
asteroids are the ultimate logistics solution. Um, and at TransAstra, we're, work, we, we're working diligently on the asteroid problem. It was, it was long range, deep technology when we started it. Now it's becoming medium range, less deep technology because we've, we've been lucky enough to be fairly successful in advancing the technology of asteroid mining. Um, and I've always, I've always strongly believed that um, the moon is a very important logistics point for humanity. And so we're also working on lunar logistics. Um, uh, and that's, that's also reasonably far term. Anything beyond sort of three to five years I view as far term. Um, but now that the moon and the asteroids are moving into the medium term, um, now we're turning our attentions, attention to short-term problems. And the specific short-term problem is low earth orbit logistics. Um, and so I spend most of my technical bandwidth today on the design integration and test of our omnivore rocket, which has always been a cornerstone of TransAstra's strategic plan. All right, so let's not take it for granted that the audience knows what space logistics is. So what is space logistics and why would it be a big deal? Well, um, logistics in general is, is you know, so, sort of the, it's sort of the job that, um, that Amazon, UPS and FedEx do, which is, um, uh, deliver products and materiel to where they're needed when they're needed. And, um, uh, and so a cornerstone of logistics is transportation. And uh, so, you know, um, Momentus is a logistics company, but there are several other logistics company companies that have come up, uh, you know, Space flight is an obvious one. Um, and then most of the launch vehicle companies, you know, the launch business is actually a space logistics business. It's just the first leg of the space logistics problem, getting, getting materiel into low earth orbit. Um, what, what other legs could there be? There's, there's the, so, um, you know, your audience is probably very well familiar with the, what SpaceX, is doing a low Earth orbit with the Starlink constellation and, and OneWeb and that sort of thing. And you know, most people are aware that that just Starlink is going to be delivering, you know, like 3,500 satellites to low Earth orbit in the next handful of years. But actually, the full Starlink plan is to deliver more like 40,000 satellites to low Earth orbit in the 2020s. And there are multiple other large constellations being built and dozens and dozens of small companies that are planning on launching uh, small constellations or and sometimes large and some large constellations in low earth orbit. Um, and the problem is that launch vehicles are really good at, at getting you into orbit, but not very good at um, delivering your packages to all the different orbital slots that they need to go to. So um, we estimate that by the end of the 2020, 2020s, 
based on the new businesses and the, 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 the massive phase of in, innovation and new business creation that we're seeing, that there could be 100,000 satellites launched in, into low Earth orbit through the 2020s. So what logistics means is getting those satellites to their orbital destinations. And when you start to, to deal with a, a satellite density that high, 100,000 satellites and a variety of low Earth orbits, um, orbital debris becomes a very real problem. And uh, humanity is going to have to step up in a serious way to keeping low Earth or to cleaning low, low Earth orbit and dealing with debris mitigation. And, and finding, and satellites will become derelict and finding them and safing them, harvesting those resources, moving, you know, moving material around low Earth orbit. That's a, that's a huge business. And so what is your solution to this problem? Well, um, in 2015, when we founded TransAstra, we formulated our logistics architecture, which is called APIS. It's, uh, APIS is the genus name for honeybees. And um, all of the vehicles in our architecture are named after different aspects of bees. Um, uh, and each one is, there's two versions of each of the classes of vehicles in our architecture. There's a worker bee and some form of a honeybee. So the first generation um, is called the mini bee, um, which is a 100 kilogram dry mass class system, 700 kilogram gross wet mass system. Um, and mini B is a technology demonstrator to demonstrate all of the core technologies needed for large scale asteroid mining. Um, so it goes, so mini B is the tech demo, which is, it's compatible with a small launch vehicle uh, in the payload capacity of the Stoke launch vehicle. And it's compatible with uh, the larger end of rideshare like the Falcon, Falcon 9 rideshare or Espagrande. Um, so there's Mini B, which is the tech demo vehicle. There's Honey B, which we see is our, our sort of um, primary asteroid mining system. It's about as big as the biggest communication satellites that are put into GEO. It's in the several, uh, several thousand kilogram few to several thousand kilogram range in size. Um, and, and each honeybee is designed to be able to go out and capture an asteroid up to a thousand tons in mass and return up to a hundred tons of water. And then the ultimate asteroid mining vehicle, the super heavy vehicle is called Queen Bee. And launching a Queen Bee into orbit will require the full capacity of a super heavy launch vehicle um, uh, at the high end of what uh, a fully evolved New Glenn can handle or well within the capacity of a starship. And um, so we have got a whole roadmap of asteroid mining vehicles and associated with each one of those three classes, sort of ride share, medium class, super heavy class, 
there is a logistics vehicle that goes with it that we call a worker bee. And um, uh, so the mini bee vehicle right now we're, we're developing under NASA sponsorship, we have um, a $3 million effort with NASA that involves $2 million of NASA funding and a million dollars of industrial co-funding. Um, and at, at its core is our omnivore propulsion system and our optical mining system. Um, and there's a worker bee equipped, there's a worker bee at the size of mini bee, i.e. designed for the larger end of ride share or the smaller end of, or, or the larger end of ride share or um, the larger end of the smaller launch vehicles. And, you know, we think the stoked vehicle is just in the right size and performance capability uh, for that mission. So we have formulated designs for worker bees um, in each of those classes. A small class that's compatible with the larger end of rideshare, a medium class, it's like a full capacity of a Falcon 9, and a super heavy class. So worker bee one, worker bee two, worker bee three. And those are all based on our patent pending omnivore rocket, which we think is a real game changer in space propulsion and transportation. And uh, so there, there are sort of three directions that we should uh, clean up for the listeners. Um, the, the first is you've mentioned Stoke twice, and I don't think most listeners have heard of Stoke. So who are they and why are they attractive to you guys? Oh, well, Stoke is a really cool launch vehicle company um, that recently went through Y Combinator and um, headed up by a brilliant young name, man named Andy Lapsa, who's a PhD in um, aerospace engineering from University of Michigan. And Andy was one of the core engine developers at Blue Origin developing uh, the BE-4 and some other engines. And Andy and a group of um, Blue Origin alumni and some, some other really super rocket engineers have started this company Stoke, which is focused on fully reusable LOX hydrogen uh, rockets. And I don't want to talk too much for, for Stoke because frankly, I can't remember how much of what they're doing is proprietary and how much is public, but they have a fantastic design which I, I, I think is full generation superior to the Starship in terms of its fundamental architecture. And uh, they're, gonna, they're gonna do great guns and we're really excited about working with them. They're a great engineering team up in the Seattle area. And it's, the, it's that kind of innovation that's really you know, gonna blow the doors off of what's happening in space. The awesome thing is that Elon Musk and SpaceX have been successful enough to show that, you know what? Agile engineering and innovation really do work in space. And they've shown that it's possible. And so a lot of really talented people are going after those things. And uh, so space is getting pretty pretty darn exciting. Of course, Stoke isn't the only exciting new launch vehicle company. And, you know, there's there's lots of other terrific ones out there. So you, uh, you mentioned your omnivore engine. What is it and why is that a big deal? Well, Omnivore is um, Transastra's patent pending solar thermal rocket engine. So space geeks know that um, the solar thermal rocket 
in concept was actually invented by a guy named Kraft Ericke uh, in the 1950s. Um, and uh, Ericke came over after World War II with some of the other German rocket scientists and developed the basic idea of the, of the solar thermal rocket. And um, solar thermal rocket, the, the idea of a solar thermal rocket is you use a large lightweight reflector uh, to concentrate sunlight into a small point. And, and that, that, that point is, is uh, in a heat exchanger. So you concentrate sunlight onto a heat exchanger, run propellant through the heat exchanger, uh, heat it up to rocket propellant temperatures and expel it through a nozzle to produce thrust. So the, the basic function of the physics of a solar thermal rocket is the same as the physics of a nuclear rocket, except the energy source is a different nuclear source, the sun. And um, the advantage of solar thermal versus nuclear is that you don't have to carry around radioactive material and you don't have to deal with um, all the safety issues associated with that. Also, you don't have to deal with criticality. You know, the criticality is the physics that says nuclear reactors can't be real small. And in fact, you know, nuclear thermal rockets really only make sense at, at pretty high thrust level. Um, where solar thermal rockets scale really well down and pretty darn well up also. Um, so it's been around conceptually since the 1950s. It, I actually had, was under the impression when I was in high school that I had invented it was back, at, back when I was in high school in the 70s, we didn't have the internet and you couldn't just Google things and find out everything that's been done on the subject. So my high school notebooks have that as, a, as an invention. Um, and it wasn't until I was a cadet at the Air Force Academy and I met Kraft Ericke in an honors uh, space architectures class at seminar that I'd been invited into and um, pulled him aside to show him my invention notebook and he said, I can't do a German accent. If I could, I would do a German accent. He said, yes, I invented this in the 1950s. I will send you this paper. And then he sent me the paper and I still have the paper. And uh, he, had, he had basically invented the concept of thin film reflectors in space and showed the physics that they actually, gas leak rates are very modest. Uh, even with micrometeor and debris impacts, which was not well understood in those days, but he got the numbers about right. Um, and uh, uh, so there have been lots and lots of folks who've worked on solar thermal rockets over the years, and there are various different patents out there. Um, there was a guy named Jim Shoji at Rocketdyne who worked on it in the 70s and 80s. I knew him when I was a young engineer at JPL. And um, Rocketdyne, uh, sold one of their solar thermal rockets to what is now AFRL. AFRL tested in a solar furnace and immediately broke it, failed immediately. Didn't get good test results. Um, uh, little known fact is that the Marshall Space Flight Center actually built a solar furnace per, for the purpose of testing solar thermal rockets. Tested them, I think about 15, 10 or 15 years ago, immediately broke the rocket. Um, and then, you know, in the, in the bad old days of old space, if you build something and break it, it means it's a failure, right? So um, when rocket engines fail, and so you have to use agile methods to make these things work. 
And it's only through rapid agile development that you figure out why they failed and how you can quickly fix that. And so I won't go into all our technical innovations on why the omnivore engine is radically different than the other designs that have been tried. Um, but with our agile method, we build and fail and, and embrace that failure for learning and move forward quickly. But I don't so think you've really explained why this is a big deal. You know, what, there's so many rocket engines out there. Right. What, why would somebody choose to do solar thermal? What, what good is it? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. So rocket engines tend to fall in, or, you know, space propulsion tends to fall into two or three categories. There's chemical rockets and, and there's electric propulsion and then there's nuclear. And each one has advantages and disadvantages. Um, the advantage, so chemical rockets are based on a technology that was, you know, originally invented by the Chinese, you know, over a thousand years ago. The issue with chemical rockets is you've typically got an oxidizer and a fuel or uh, that, that you, you burn together and they're typically hazardous materials um, that are toxic, dangerous to work with. Um, or you've got a monopropellant, which goes through some type of exothermic chemical reaction, which means you're walking around with something that's essentially an explosive. Um, typically, because they're highly reactive, they're toxic. Um, even the so-called green propellants. Uh, now, to me, if something is green, it means you wouldn't mind um, having it in your kitchen, you know, and. Uh, uh, the green propellants are, are certainly not green by that definition. Um, so chemical propulsion has the wonderful advantage that it, it you know, produces lots of thrust. Uh, it has a disadvantage about safety um, and, it and it's limited in performance. You know, and the way we normally measure performance of a rocket engine is in, with a parameter called specific impulse, which is roughly analogous to mileage in a car. So, and chemical rockets don't get very good mileage. Um, so to get around that issue and, and break the, the limit of specific impulse, there's, there are, there's electric propulsion. Electric propulsion is what I did my PhD in at Caltech. And, um, and you made reference in my introduction to the Dawn spacecraft that flew to Vesta and Ceres, the asteroids. It's based on electric propulsion. Uh, ion propulsion is an example of electric propulsion. Hall thruster is an example. And the nice thing about electric propulsion is it gets you around the specific impulse limit. But to make it work, you have to carry big solar arrays, big electronics, power processors. And so these systems tend to be extremely expensive. And because you have to carry the electric power in the form of solar array, and because the specific impulse is high, the efficiency is low and the thrust is low. So the beauty of electric propulsion is it doesn't use much propellant, but it's expensive and slow. So omnivore fits right in between. And the other beauty of omnivore, the reason we call it omnivore is because the engine can use virtually any volatile fluid as propellant. And we're actually um, planning an amusing test this summer to operate the engine on a sports drink in conjunction with a beverage manufacturer. But I'm, that's all I'm gonna say about that. 
we'll talk more about that when we can do a public release. All right. But, um, but all this but the, is what, part of a broader vision, right? Right. So the, what's really important about Omnivore is a couple of things. One is it can operate on virtually any fluid. So if you operate it on liquid hydrogen, you can get specific impulses approaching 900 seconds, which is just perfect for spacecraft operations in uh, Earth orbit, cislunar space, uh, going out to the asteroids. And if you're interested in going to Mars, it's, it's perfect for that also. And if you've got other propellants like water or hydrazine, it can also operate on those. So in terms of logistics, it becomes the easiest thing to resupply. And so we see a network of propellant depots, maybe government, maybe different companies, maybe our own, selling propellant from different sources in Earth in, in orbit. We intend to sell propellant in orbit based on resources that we extract from asteroids. And with our, our worker bee vehicles propelled by omnivore, they'll be able to, to refill just about anywhere. And we think that's a, a fantastic logistical advantage. All right, so that means that we, we can look forward to a future of flex fuel vehicles that can refuel anywhere. You, you mentioned that this is part of asteroid mining and in the minds of many people I encounter, uh, they think that this is a crazy far out idea and to the extent that they have ever considered it, uh, they're probably aware that the, that the two prominent asteroid mining firms uh, disappeared in some manner, were acquired, and so uh, many seem to think it's a fad. Why is asteroid mining an interesting idea worthy of your time? Yeah, so asteroid mining is one of those crazy ideas like the internal combustion engine, electric powered cars or airplanes that are just really nutty uh, until it until it happens. If you're gonna, the way that you evaluate whether something is nutty or not is on the basis of the fundamental physics and ex economics of it. And a little known fact about the asteroids is that we know that there are thousands of asteroids within the Neo belt that have returned delta Vs significantly less than the delta V to uh, return resources from the moon uh, to say G. Let, let's pause right there and uh, explain delta V. So, you know, I made the analogy specific impulses like mileage. Um, and and that by that analogy, the way that we measure distance in space is through a parameter called delta V. It's, it's the just like the distance that your car travels is tells how much work the engine had to do to get you from point A to point B. Uh, the amount of work that the propulsion system on a spacecraft has to do to get you from point A to point B is measured with a parameter called delta V. And so if you wanna know how hard it is to get somewhere in space, you look at a delta V map. So, um, so there are billions of asteroids spread throughout the solar system. Most people think of the asteroids as living primarily in a belt between Mars and Jupiter. And that's true, that's where most of them are. But there are hundreds of millions of so-called near-Earth asteroids that um, approach uh, close to the orbit of the Earth. And within those, there are tens of thousands of asteroids 
that are in highly Earth-like orbits, very nearly circular, at about one astronomical unit from the sun. And, it's, and the delta V to get to and from those targets is lower than uh, any other space, any other point in space. So in a, in a real sense, in terms of energy and rocket propellant, there are nearest neighbors in space. And about a quarter of them are loaded with volatile materials that are ideal for making rocket propellant out of. And for the past few years, Transastra has been working on the deep technology to learn how to capture those asteroids, turn them into resources, and extract the valuable materials from them. And that's really the difference between Transastra and those other companies you were referring to that, that went out of business. Transastra took a patient deep technology approach um, where we identified that the tall tent poles for asteroid mining and started working the technology in a very fundamental sense. And we were lucky enough that there were some visionaries within NASA who agreed with our view and funded us to do that deep technology. So we've partnered with some of the top universities in this area, the University of Central Florida with Professor Dan Britt, planetary scientist, um, uh, University of Hawaii Institute of Astronomy uh, with Professor Rob Jedicke, and Colorado School of Mines, uh, their Center for Space Resources and Professor um, Christopher Dreyer. And in Chris's lab at Colorado School of Mines, we built what I think is the world's preeminent asteroid mining uh, uh, R&D uh, apparatus. It's a system that we call the optical mining test bed. And it's based on our patent pending method of asteroid mining called optical mining. Optical mining uses highly concentrated sunlight to um, excavate asteroids without touching them and extract the volatile materials. Uh, volatile materials meaning molecules like water, um, methane, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, hydrogen. And we've done dozens of experiments and demonstrations in the optical mining testbed. Um, the other purpose of the optical mining testbed is to use that same light source in the optical mining testbed to demonstrate our omnivore engines. So um, in, within two weeks, we'll, we'll, we're, we're testing our omnivore engines in other ways here in Southern California now, um, but we'll be moving uh, our Mark I engine to Colorado School of Mines and testing it at multi-kilowatt levels within the next two weeks with the, the highly intense simulated sunlight that we, we get in the optical mining test bed. So let's talk a bit about what you see as the earliest markets for asteroid mining. The earliest markets for asteroid mining will be selling propellant for transportation services in what I'll loosely refer to as cislunar space, which includes um, low Earth orbit, MEO, GEO, and orbit around the moon. So who would buy that? And, and why should we think that there's going to be a, a market for, for it? First of all, how much are you planning to return? I think you gave a figure earlier. And then, you know, why, why would you believe that there will be a customer for this since today there's no one purchasing propellant on Earth? Um, the, 
Today, there's no one purchasing propellant on orbit because the market hasn't developed yet. So people bring up their own propellant. But for many space operations, the total cost of the space operations, this is certainly true for all human space operations um, uh, uh, beyond low Earth orbit. Uh, and this is often true in low Earth orbit, but a typical number is that 80% of the cost of uh, missions can be dominated by the cost of the propellant and the propulsion systems required to operate those. And um, so once you get to fully reusable vehicles, space truck, trucks or space tugs, um, commoditizing propellant and selling propellant so that space tugs can carry satellites between destinations becomes a real business. Um, it was a delight to hire 40 engineers and build the engineering team in 2019 when I was up at Momentus. And um, the business development team at Momentus showed that there's a real market for orbital logistics and they deserve a lot of credit for that. And as a result of what they're doing, there are many other entrants. Most of the other entrants are based on chemical propulsion and green propellants. Um, but um, the market has spoken very clearly that this is a uh, that, that there really is a market for this for delivering satellites in Earth, Earth orbit, um, and I think the the market the valuation that the investment community has given to logistics companies um, is well north of a billion dollars right now just based on the nascent market that's developing, and it's all about delivering satellites to where they need to go, and then later. Um, uh, clearing, uh, clearing debris and moving satellites, uh, especially if they when they go defunct. Now let's so start just in pause Lawrence for a bit. minute. Sure. To to talk about Pomentus, you were you were the CTO there, and and that's a very different rocket technology, but it, it's also something novel that we hadn't seen before. So talk a little bit about what what is the technology behind Pomentus and and why that was a big deal. Well, I, I think the contribution that Momentus made was really showing that there's a great market in space logistics. And, um, uh, and they also showed that investors are really interested in innovative approaches like water-based propulsion. But um, I haven't worked with Momentus for over a year, so I should you know, limit my remarks. So you mentioned water-based propulsion, and yes. I can't take it for granted that all my listeners would be familiar with this or this notion of a water economy. So talk to me about the importance of, of water in space logistics. So um, in the short term, a water-based logistics market is super clear and super important because in a in a propulsive device like the omnivore thruster, water can be used directly as rocket propellant. Um, it can also, it can all, it's, the beauty of water is that it's easy to store. It can also be chemically processed by a simple process of electrolysis to turn it into oxygen and hydrogen. And oxygen and hydrogen are the highest performing practical propellant combination. So this is why companies like um, Blue Origin and Stoke are baselining LOX hydrogen propellants. Um, 
The other thing about water is that it's highly future-proof. Um, you pretty much everywhere we go in the solar system, we now know we'll find water. Uh, on the order of 20, 25% of asteroids are volatile rich asteroids that typically are comprised 20% water. So water is the ultimate future-proof space resource. Um, everywhere we go in space, we found, find water and other volatiles. Remember when I was a young engineer working at JPL in the 80s, there were a few engineers and scientists suggesting, hey, there might be some water frozen in the poles of the moon. And they were literally laughed off the stage. And um, then we sent spacecraft to Mercury and discovered there's massive troves of water frozen into the poles of Mercury. Now, if you think about that, that's an astounding statement. Mercury is the closest planet to the sun. And the, you know, the surface of Mercury that faces the sun is, you know, the conditions there are, you know, typical of uh, the conditions inside of a, a blast furnace. Um, uh, but water has a way of getting around and going and staying where you least, least expect it. And um, there, I think there's been a monotonic increase every year in the science community's view uh, over, the, over the past 30 years of how much water there is in the moon. And still there are conservative scientists who say, oh, no, 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 no. You know, even in the PSRs, you know, it's only gonna be a few percent and there's gonna be a dry overbearing. It's gonna be really hard to say, uh, really hard to, to get. And they may be right. And we need to go to the moon and find out, you know, exactly the form of water that's there and how much there is. Uh, we know it's in the billions of tons. We don't know exactly the form and how easy it is to access. We have a much better idea of how much water there is on the asteroids because we have lots and lots of asteroid samples. You know, pretty much if you, if you go walking around in Antarctica and pick up a rock, it was probably an asteroid. Um, and so we're, and then we have pretty good statistics on the distribution of types. And, you know, there are error bars on these statistics and within the community, they can debate you know, whether it's 18 or 27% of the NEOs are carbonaceous volatile rich asteroids. And, and then each asteroid will have a different fraction of volatiles, water and other similar type chemicals. Um, you, know, and, you know, some of them might be 10%, some of them might be 25%, but there's plenty there to harvest. So the, the cool thing about it, is, and you know, human beings need water to survive. We can crack it into oxygen and hydrogen. We need the oxygen to breathe. The hydrogen is the ultimate rocket propellant in a thermal propulsion system whether it be a nuclear thermal or a solar thermal propulsion system. So water is, you know, the space resource to go after. Um, there are others who feel that methane is a great resource. Uh, and, you know, and it is, it is a, you know, and SpaceX and some other companies baseline locks methane for upper stage propellant. And um, that's fine. If you have a carbon source and you have water, you can make methane using the Sabatier process. Um, 
But my betting, and I think many in the community are betting on water. I think it's a safe bet. And wherever humanity goes, it will need and find water. So expertise in harvesting and delivering water as a commercial product is a really valuable thing. This is probably a good place to transition to talk about big goals. So you've talked about space logistics and asteroid mining and wherever human beings go, but what, what's the big picture you see? What's the future ahead of us that we should want? Well, um, you know, there's 7.8 billion people on this planet. Um, biologists tell us that by mass, Homo sapien outweighs any other higher animal on the planet. Between Homo sapien and our livestock, that combination outweighs the wild animals on the planet. The biosphere works through a balance of flora and fauna. And the biosphere has been largely reprogrammed as a human support system. And you know, different people can debate the carrying capacity of the earth, but it's not infinite. You know, I, I my my personal view is it's probably in the 10 to 12 billion people range, which means that if we stay on the earth, humanity needs to level off. And that's not good for humanity. Um, the ultimate reason to go into, into space is to benefit people and to provide their resources for an indefinite exponential potential so that every generation can have it better than the one before. And the cool thing about it is that the resources of the asteroids offer about a thousand times the resources and carrying capacity of the earth. So if you, and so if you step back and look at it from not the hundred thousand foot level, but you know, from the hundred kilometer level, say, you know, or the, or the hundred AU level, and look at the solar system and look at where are the resources, where's the ultimate place for humanity and what we evolve into to live, really planetary surfaces aren't the place. It's building worlds from asteroid resources. And, in, and that's a long range futurist perspective. And, and I think that the person who first articulated that, that perspective is Gerard O'Neill, who gave me one of my first ever consulting contracts as a young man. Um, uh, and I think his vision is the right one. Um, in the shorter term, the reason to harvest the resources of the asteroids is because they're incredibly plentiful, easy to get at, and very valuable from a business perspective in the short term. Um, but the reason, you know, the reason they excite and motivate the people working on it is to know that we're part of a mission to free humanity from the limited resources of planet Earth. So, um, so for me, the ultimate destination is the asteroids and building O'Neillian space settlements out of asteroids. Um, along the way to get there, step one is a very practical short-term thing. 
which is harvesting asteroid resources to get rocket propellant to increase the cost effectiveness of businesses in orbit, businesses that are in the, in the communications businesses, you know, the building satellite network, satellite communication network, earth observations networks. Um, and, you know, right now there's a big revolution in big Leo, but it's not gonna be limited to Leo. We're gonna see mega, mega satellites in geo. You know, people think of geo satellites and they think these are these huge satellites serving cold continents, but you should put it in context. A really big communication satellite in geo has a 20 kilowatt array on it. My house has a 10 kilowatt array on it. So here we have a communication platform broadcasting to an entire continent with an array that's twice as big as a single, single family home. Um, they're completely underpowered. Communication satellites up until now have been completely underpowered. And um, we're gonna see, in, in my view, we're gonna see a return to big geo. And we're gonna see, and we're getting better at radiation hard electronics. We're gonna see a lot more assets, commercial and government assets in NEO. And all of that stuff is gonna need resupply. So um, I also get very excited about the moon. One of the beauties of the moon is that it's only, you know, depending on your trajectory, between three days and two weeks from the earth. That's an extremely powerful benefit. Um, the other thing about the moon is that the, the Delta V for launching off the moon is quite modest. And it's completely, it's, it's completely reasonable to use hypervelocity launch to launch millions of tons of material off the surface of the moon. Um, when Gerard O'Neill was working on it, he called electromagnetic launchers mass drivers. Um, electronics uh, have, the, the revolutions that have occurred in electronics make electronic hypervelocity launch from the moon quite easy nowadays compared to the plans that O'Neill and company had. And so um, in terms of just gross raw material, uh, the moon is also a fantastic source and a fantastic source of water. Um, so if you believe that people should live on the surface of a planet, on a planetary surface other than the earth, it's kind of a no brainer that if you're gonna be building cities on another planetary surface, the first ones should be on the moon, um, in my view. Uh, so the, the moon makes a lot of sense. The asteroids make a lot of sense. The asteroids make sense, um, you know, with, with they have their plentiful quantities of strategic rare earths and um, uh, precious materials make it so that as space transportation costs come down, it does make economic sense to bring precious metals back from the asteroid, asteroids. And so, um, one of the things that you should be that we should be doing as we look at the big picture and say, where should humanity go in space is ask a really fundamental question. Wherever we go in space, how does it help the people of the earth? And how does it help extend the carrying capacity of the terrestrial biosphere? Um, uh, 
So if you're in close proximity to the Earth, you can do comms. You can observe the Earth, get a better idea of what's going on on the Earth. And asteroid resources are plentiful enough and the delta Vs to get back from the asteroids are low enough, then it makes sense to harvest resources from the asteroids and bring them back. And so if you're gonna be benefiting the Earth, you need to be in the vicinity of the Earth. So that's, so that's why the asteroids and the moon make a lot of sense. I don't think there's another planetary surface in the solar system that makes much sense to consider settling for any rational or economic reason. And I take it that you're including then uh, Mars, that you don't see Mars as a particularly valuable piece of real estate? Not in a, not for a very long time. Um, you know, there are, there are advocates, very well-known advocates of going to Mars. And when they're asked, what will the people on Mars do for a living and how will they benefit the earth? There's no, there's no real answer. There, there is a view that somehow having a, a city on Mars could prevent extinction on the earth. And uh, I just don't think that argument stands up to any um, real critical analysis. Pretty much any, you know, so right now I'm talking to you on Zoom and over your shoulder, you have artwork of an asteroid about to impact the earth, okay? So, so people say, well, a reason to go to Mars is what if an asteroid hits the earth and wipes out all life on the earth? Well, if an asteroid of the magnitude of the one that drove the dinosaurs to extinction hit the earth today, the earth would still be infinitely more habitable than the planet Mars. Um, and then people say, well, what if there was a war on the earth? Then, you know, well, if you go to Mars, you have to live in sealed underground caverns. They have to be sealed because the Martian atmosphere is effectively a vacuum and it's poisonous. Mars is covered with perchlorates, which are poisonous. Mars's atmosphere doesn't provide meaningful protection from radiation, so you have to live underground if you're gonna do things like gestate children. So I can't see any benefit, and maybe, you know, I'd love to have someone challenge me on this, but any scenario where you're trying to prevent extinction of humans, or if you just lived, lived in sealed underground con containers on the earth, just like the ones you live on Mars, or you wouldn't get essentially the same benefit or under the ocean. Um, humanity is thriving as a species right now. Um, the, the, for the rate of poverty on earth, except for the blip that was increased during the pandemic, and we'll get back to the secular um, trends, is lower than it has been at any time in human history. The rate of starvation is lower than it has been in any time in human history. The rate of disease is lower than any time in human history. The rate of access to clean water is higher than it has been. This, is in, this includes the worst places on the earth. You know, I'm, I turned 60 this year. Um, when I was 20, um, the majority of people on the earth didn't have access to clean water and, and most were living on the edge of starvation. The, the wonderful fact that people aren't aware of is that that's not true. The earth is getting better um, and humanity is thriving as a species. 
Um, so it's just difficult for me to see that any scenario where a city on Mars would provide significantly greater protection than a city on the moon, which is much easier to, to develop and maintain, or an underwater city on the earth or a subterranean city on the earth. The reason to go into space is not out of fear of extinction. The reason to go into space is out of excitement for a fantastic future for our species. So when we talk about the sorts of excitement that's possible, paint me an image of our future in space and where you, where you want to take us. What is that? What's that exciting beatic vision that, that drives you? Well, I don't know if it's beatic, but um, if you look at the, at the history of life on the earth, it's a history of life filling an ecosystem and then jumping and colonizing the next ecosystem. And, um, you know, I, li I like to say that there have been three or four major events that are far beyond historic in the history of planet Earth. You know, one was the first organism, the first life on Earth. We don't know if we're the only life in the universe or not. People who claim to know are not thinking scientifically. Um, that may be an extraordinary event, or it may be a very common event. We simply don't know. It's an extraordinary event on, on our planet. And then when we got the first eukaryotic life, multi, you know, that could, with complex cells that could become multi-cellular, multi, uh, that was a big deal. Um, when fish walked on land, colonized the land, that was a big deal. You know, these, these big deals were, you know, they're far beyond the magnitude of any human historic event. Now, if we look at it from that perspective, we're actually sitting on the cusp of a big deal that's more significant than fish walking on the land. And that is the biosphere of the earth is ready to seed the solar system. And if you look at it from a big picture perspective, the resources of the asteroid Asteroids, which are enough to build worlds with a thousand times the carrying capacity of the Earth. This is if you take the mass of asteroids, hollow them out to seven meter thickness. The total surface area is a thousand times the surface area of the Earth. Um, so this is this is a resource base that can support a population of a trillion people living in splendor. That's a thousand years of human development. At the current rate of progress, you know, well before a thousand years of human development, we will have evolved far beyond you know, anything that we can envision now. And we'll be perfectly capable of interstellar travel. Those worlds with nuclear propulsion system attached could easily travel between the stars. And traveling between the stars, they could colonize other star systems. And in a time period that's very short compared to the very short, a matter of a few million years, 
there can be our, our progeny in every solar system in the universe, in the galaxy. That's, so what that means is life from Earth becomes immortal. That's the most exciting thing I can think about. Um, that's pretty darn exciting. And in the short term, there are business opportunities in low Earth orbit, MEO, and, C and cislunar space. Um, whatever country controls that will, you know, will have a unique military advantage. It's very important to me that that be a country that believes in freedom, democracy, and free markets with equal access to um, the commons. Um, and so what's the exciting near-term potential? There's gold in them hills. There are fortunes to be made. Um, and that will lead to um, massive human travel in cislunar space. You know, it started this week, you know, when someone bid $28 million to go ride into a suborbital flight with Jeff Bezos. Um, there are SpaceX chartered flights now with uh, private sector flights to, to space. Transastra's own studies of this, which were funded by the NASA Chief Technologist Office, suggest that there are 250,000 people on the planet with the resources to pay for a two-week vacation on the moon with a space transportation architecture supported by the new Glenn and uh, the trans transastra cargo transport system. So, you know, expect within a very short period of time, orbital hotels, hotels on the moon, and a really important point that I don't think the community understands is it's not just access to low earth orbit that's gonna get a lot cheaper. The, um, the, um, the amount of energy that a rocket propulsion system has to process to carry people from the earth to the moon is actually less than the amount of energy that a jet engine processes carrying a Boeing Dreamliner from Los Angeles to Tokyo. The velocities are higher, but jet engines have to push airplanes through an atmosphere such that the Delta V that the propulsion system on an airliner has to deliver for long haul flights can approach 20 kilometers per second. That's enough to go from here to the moon and back more than once. So, um, there's, so, so Apollo was a wonderful program, but an interesting thing to do is go to a museum and get up close and look at those vehicles. Those cockpits look like cockpits of World War II fighters, incredibly primitive technology. We went to the moon with, as Spock would say, stone knives and bearskins. And it was hard. It was really hard with that technology. It was heroic what those astronauts did, and it was brilliant what those engineers did. But with modern engineering tools, modern integration and test, modern agile development, 
people love to say space is hard. It's really not. Space is, space is unforgiving. You have to do different styles of engineering. But my God, it's been 50 years since we've been to the moon. The technology base has changed so radically. Space is not that hard. But psychologically, the space community is still shell-shocked from the effort it took to put people on the moon in Apollo. And, and, and as such, they're, they're, they operate out of fear. I spent 14 years working in NASA at JPL. And if I had to describe the one emotion that, this, that, that drives decision-making and flight projects within NASA and JPL, it's fear. It's fear of failure. You know, at NASA headquarters today, you can still see posters on the wall that say failure is not an option. Well, if you're so afraid of failure that your biggest thing is preventing failure, then you'll spend infinite money to do nothing, which is sort of what we're doing with SLS and Orion right now. Um, and if you look at the difference in cost effectiveness between private sector approaches and traditional government approaches, government approaches, you can see that 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 this fear-driven mentality and this mantra that space is hard, the psychology of that is actually what's been holding us back. But the exciting thing is that actually with modern engineering, agile methods, space is hard, but it's no harder than anything else. I mean, the, the, the level of precision and engineering that goes into an airliner and the level of complexity of an airliner, if you compare an airliner to say a Falcon 9, an airliner is a far more complex and sophisticated system. Um, so space is actually not that hard. And um, the 20th century visionaries, like you know, science fiction writers and so on, like Robert Heinlein, that imagined you know, rockets that could soft land and be flown around like aircraft. That's much closer to the truth about what's technically feasible today than the fear-driven concept of a rocket backed up by thousands of engineers and you know, a mission control populated by hundreds of people looking at detailed telemetry streams of every conceivable system on the vehicle. We're getting to the point, and we're getting to the point where space need not be so hard. And it's clear when you look at the details of the engineering that the, you know, you know, right now for NASA to put a person on the moon, you know, is probably a $15 billion proposition using a mixture of old space and new space methods. But as new space continues to accelerate, it will rapidly become the case where putting a tourist on the moon is within the realm of feasibility of a few million dollars and tourists in low earth orbit for a few hundred thousand dollars. When that happens, thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people will start traveling in space. But when you run the economics on it and you look at um, the, the, the first principles irreducibles, it shouldn't be that much more expensive to go to the moon than to Tokyo with an airliner. That's very exciting. And so um, we are starting the, the real space age now for the first time. Um, the Apollo era approach of 
traditional government systems engineering was what the futurist Ray Kurzweil calls a false pretender. Um, by the way, the early asteroid mining companies were false pretenders. That's not a criticism of the brilliant people who worked there and uh, they're my friends, um, but they're economic false pretenders because they came in too early and took the wrong approach. Uh, but as we move into the era of practical spacecraft, space transportation will not be, it will always be about 10 times more expensive than rocket, than air, air transportation that has to do with some irreducible physics and economics. But so if it costs $1,000 to do round trip to Tokyo, then, you know, $10,000 round trip to, to uh, an orbital hotel or even a hotel on the moon becomes reasonable in the 20 year time frame. Wow. So I wanted to come back to something that you had said. So you used the term new space and I'd like you to define that. And then you talked about the relative efficiency of the private sector versus traditional uh, government. I know that you did a, a uh, a study called Stepping Stones that can help us sort of quantify how, how big a difference that can make. Um, yeah, I'd have to dust off my intellectual cobwebs to remember exactly what the ratios are and that sort of thing. And, and Stepping Stones, which, you know, we're really grateful to um, Alexander McDonald, NASA headquarters, and the people up at Ames. I won't list them off because I might forget one of the names. Um, but the people up at Ames at the Space Portal for funding that, it was a really fun study to do. We were not, we were not the first to use cost models to compare um, the relative cost effectiveness of the private sector approaches in space versus the government approaches in space. Um, but, you know, people have done detailed case studies comparing, for example, the cost of Falcon 9 development to typical government approach and you know which companies and contracts those involve, but it's 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 at least you know develop it's at least a factor of ten in development cost savings. Um, but then, because the private sector has an interest in cost effectiveness, it develops a different type of a system. It develops a system that can be maintained in a cost effective way and reused. And it's through practical maintenance and reuse, you know, the sorts of things that SpaceX and um, Blue Origin and Stoke and Relativity are doing and the, and the sort of things that Transaster is doing. Um, it's that, it's the fact that you're reusing and designed for, designing for operability and designing for cost, life cycle cost effectiveness that really makes the big difference. Um, so, you know, a Falcon 9 costs less than an airliner to produce. And it should because it's a simpler system. Um, it, but still, operations costs are vastly higher. But the work that the industry is doing at SpaceX and Blue Origin and Stoke and other places to get the operations costs down, you know, there's no fundamental physics or engineering reason why a spaceship can't land, have, have a visual inspection, check the telemetry, refuel the propellant tanks, repropel, and launch in a matter of hours. And um, 
Once you do that, then the cost of the system collapses and then you get affordability. And um, I think the, the space community is starting to understand that that's coming to low Earth orbit. And what I, that's coming to launch to low Earth orbit. And what I'm here to say is, you know, let's remember what Heinlein told us, once you're in low Earth orbit, you're halfway to any, anywhere. That's good news, but it, it also means that the, that the cost savings of reuse has to continue in orbit. Orbital vehicles have to be fully reusable. And it's actually easier to fully reuse vehicles that don't have to fly through the atmosphere. The atmosphere, you know, and if you land on a barge, you're exposed to, you know, salt, sea air. You know, the terrestrial environment is, is much more hazardous to a spacecraft than the space environment. So reuse of vehicles in space becomes even more important. That air is coming. When that happens, the total end-to-end -end transportation problem starts to approach to within an order of the air transportation problem. And that is really exciting. All right. So did you want to define new space? Well, you know, it's not my word. I think Rick Tomlinson was the one who coined it. He's a great communicator. But um, so, I, you know, I, 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 let's say I'll use the word. So what it means is private sector companies working in, the, to me, this is what it means. I won't try to speak for Rick. Private sector companies working in the space business, not using traditional government contracting methods and systems engineering approaches, but rather using commercial approaches and agile development with a fail fast mentality and rapid design iteration with the concept of failing quickly, learning much from failures during development so that one can develop a system which is ultimately more reliable and more cost-effective than the top-down approaches of the 20th century. Now you've used agile development more than once, and I imagine that some of that was baked into your last answer, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to be clear about what agile development is and what you contrast that against, you know, like what is the other approach? So, so agile, Agile aerospace is, well, so, so let, let, let's just say that any technical leader should use common sense. But then, but then when you're describing what you do, if you have to describe every step in the process, it takes too long. So it's easier to use a quick, um, a quick handle like Agile. Agile aerospace is a little bit like Agile software. Um, which is an iterative design process to software development, but it's different when you're working with hardware. And it's a realization that the cost of hardware development is dominated actually by the cost of engineering time. And so being afraid about breaking hardware is crazy. If you spend engineering time to prevent breaking hardware. So I'll, I'll so I'll, I'll contrast Agile with say traditional aerospace systems engineering, also called rough, big requirements up front. In traditional aer aerospace engineering, 
you spend a lot of time studying the problem, lots of PowerPoint presentations, lots of requirements documentation, lots of swirl on deciding exactly what you're gonna build, figuring out all the risks and figuring out using paper and pencil or you know, computer and PowerPoint, how to mitigate those risks. Um, and so you spend billions you know, on a typical space project or hundreds of millions before you've ever built anything. Um, you, know, you know, on a $10 billion NASA project, they will have spent a billion dollars before they built a single piece of hardware, okay? Agile is a different approach where you realize that a lot of the risks that you think are gonna happen don't happen, but a lot of the risks that are really gonna bite you are the ones you can't predict by sitting in a conference room or at your desk. And where you really learn is in test. So it's where you, you, you build quickly based on notional ideas, test, expect to fail, and then you build into your test plans, the instrumentation that, you, that allows you to learn from the failure, and then you quickly iterate. And when you start a project, you have an idea of what the gross iterations will be. Um, but, and you also recognize that when you get into tests, it's gonna test in ways you can't anticipate. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a build, test, fail, design, analyze, build, test, fail, constant, rapid cycle. Um, I used to have a terribly difficult time explaining what this means to aerospace engineers who've never been exposed to it. It's pretty easy to explain nowadays when you look at what SpaceX does with a Starship. Um, you know, a, a really great example of what I'm talking about was there was a wonderful project back in the 20th century called DCX. And it was a project where they had a LOX hydrogen single stage system that was capable, it was a rocket, it was capable of taking off, flying around and landing. And what happened to the DCX is what you'd expect to happen. It landed one day and it had, and don't quote, I, I'm not exactly sure the failure mode, but I think there was a propellant leak, caught on fire, burned up and was destroyed. So what management said was, well, that was a failure. In fact, they established the principle of vertical landing of rockets and it was a very cheap vehicle and they could have quickly made it, they, they should have anticipated that they would need at least three versions. And that at some point in the test cycle, the first one would fail, but all the stuff they learned from the first one would then go into the second one and so on. And it, had they done that, we would have been in the era of vertical rocket landing far sooner. Now, it, it is also true that many of the alumni from DCX, including my good friend, Jim French, you know, went on to, to, to pioneer, you know, a lot of the vertical landing stuff that's going on in the community today. So I want to come back uh, to stepping stones because I thought that was a, a, a one of the first times that it was truly clear, you know, how how different one approach could be. So if I remember right, this was focused on NASA's ambitious goals and what they would cost if they did it business as usual, and then what it would cost if they were to incorporate space resources to sort of live off the land, and then what it would have cost them if they also went the step of using commercial methods. And, and as I recall, the, these were like 
three fairly staggering different increments in terms of what the end cost to the taxpayer might be. Am I remembering yeah, that right. correct? Yeah, you're right. I, I, don't, I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but um, what we did was we defined a program of human exploration that involved uh, sorties to the moon, sorties to near-Earth asteroids, um, and uh, various different orbital stations, like you know, roughly akin to the gateway, over a 10-year period. And we costed it you know, those ways that you're talking about. And we looked at the NASA budget and we consulted with um, experts inside the Beltway, how much could NASA realistically get for a human exploration program? And we concluded that realistically, given political realities, NASA would only get about $100 billion over a 10 year period. And what we showed was using traditional approaches with traditional cost models, it would cost well over 300 billion with traditional government contracts and um, without using space resources. Now, now, let me just mention that the cost models that we used won't work for SLS and Orion because SLS and Orion are actually about five times more expensive than those cost models. So this was based on past programs that were more efficient. So when and so when you when you run the cost model that said it would be three hundred billion dollars and unaffordable, when you ran that cost model on SLS and Orion, it came out with a number that was a fraction of what SLS and Orion are actually costing. Okay, so that's that's kind of how bad it's gotten. Um, and then we ran it in those different variants that you talked about with space resources, you know, harvesting propellant on the moon and so on. That saved about $100 billion. I mean, and when I say about $100 billion, look, the report is online. You can look up the actual numbers. Don't hold me to it. Plus I'll, or minus I'll post 30%. it with the podcast. There you go. And then we said, okay, what if we use space resources and um, public-private partnership where the, the companies that are participating are co-investing with the idea that they can win follow-on contracts and use these systems for commercial applications. So this is exactly how the commercial orbital trans transport system COTS did, um, did the, the cargo resupply uh, to the space station, which got the Dragon 1 resupply missions to the space station, also the Northrop Grumman uh, resupply, uh, it was not Northrop Grumman at the time. It was, um, I'm spacing on the name of the big aerospace company that's since merged with Northrop Grumman, but you know what I'm talking ATK? about. At one point it was, it was ATK. At one point it was Orbital, right? Um, and then, and so this, this, this approach to public-private partnership where the government says, yeah, we'll, we'll pay maybe the majority of the cost, but you have enough, you have to have enough skin in the, in the game that it hurts you really badly if you go over budget. So you have to use commercial methods. So that's fantastic, the public-private partnership. It can be done in a number of different ways through other transactional authority, um, Space Act agreements, or just good contracting. Um, and, uh, 
And anyway, when you put all those combinations together, it got the 10-year cost of this very exciting program of human exploration down below 100 billion. So it resulted in a, a human exploration budget of only $10 billion a year. And our, and our consultants inside the Beltway said, yeah, Congress would sign up to that. And so, and what was very exciting about it is it actually got written up in the Wall Street Journal. And Mike Pence, who was the head of the Space Council at the time, read the report and asked for copies of it. So we, we thought that was nifty. But for us, what was more significant about it was the commercial potential. What, and what it said was that if NASA partners with industry to build the space infrastructure of space logistics, propellant depots, and either asteroid or lunar surface propellant mining, it puts in place an infrastructure that vastly reduces the cost of NASA emissions of exploration. But that infrastructure is so cost-effective, it enables massive space tourism, and it enables a hotel on the moon that can pay for itself and make a profit. So that, to, to me, that was a mind-blowing, cool result that we were very excited about. Once you build a hotel on a moon that can build a profit, now you can build a town. Once you can build a town and you're building settlements in space, then you're off to the races. And then humans, humanity becomes, you know, an exoterrestrial species, which is what our goal is. So, you know, obviously NASA is not doing nothing in this regard, but NASA may not be being as, as aggressive as you might hope that they would be. So what would the government need to be doing to, to truly incentivize and kick this off at the speed that you'd like to see it going? Well, um, there's Joel Sursell, the idealist, and there's Joel Sursell, the realist. Okay. So most politicians don't view NASA as a program to develop the science and technology to maintain the United States as leading edge or to develop the science and technology to bring you know, the United States and humanity into space. They view it as pork for their districts. And there are well-established government contractors who are very connected to those politicians and to those communities who vote for those politicians, who basically this is a jobs program. And the thing about a jobs program is the less efficient you are, the more jobs you get into your district. So the, the, the incentives are all wrong. Um, I wish I could convince politicians that it's actually a better jobs program, better for their districts. If they limit their funding to efficient companies that have been proven to be cost-effective, you know, how can a reasonable person look at something like the Starship, which is clearly a 20th, 21st century vehicle? It is, it is so architecturally and technologically far in advance of SLS or anything those contractors are working on. And if you, and, you know, we, you know, SpaceX is a private company. We don't know exactly what they're spending on it, but, but we know approximately how much, we know what their government revenue is. We know what their private sector revenue is, and we know how much investment dollars they've gotten. Those are all reasonably well understood publicly. And so we know that the cost of Starship, which is the most advanced rocket ever built, 
is a fraction of the cost of SLS, which is a purely 20th century design based on retread space shuttle components. So how any person can look at that and say that SLS is the right thing to do is beyond me. And um, it almost feels like, I don't mean illegal corruption, I mean intellectual corruption. It almost, it's like an intellectual corruption here that people can actually get up and advocate these programs. We should be, we should be building partnerships so that there are more companies competing you know, head to head with SpaceX in a pure private sector way. What's awesome is that the investment community has figured that out. You know, Relativity was a Y Combinator company. Stoke is a Y Combinator company. By the way, Transastra is now a Y Combinator company. Um, and, and explain why that's a big deal. Well, Y Combinator is a Silicon Valley incubator that connects companies to capital. You can only get into Y Combinator if you show that you have a solid business plan with great near-term prospects and a great roadmap. Um, uh, y Combinator companies include companies like Airbnb and the total valuation of Y Combinator companies is in the many hundreds of billions of dollars. It's created a huge amount of wealth for the world and mostly for the United States. Um, so, but what I was gonna say is, even though the government can't figure it out because of institutional history and the fact that politicians have to drive that money to their districts, the private sector's figured it out. And, you know, Amazon started a space incubator. Um, there's some really cool companies in that. And, um, uh, you know, we, we see Rocket Lab, going public with a SPAC, uh, another fantastic company. I'm so glad that they're actually developing a big rocket now. Um, their earlier one was too small in my view. And, um, you know, and all of these rocket companies, most of them are embracing full reusability, which is absolutely the right way to go. Some of them have architectures which are demonstrably, in my opinion, superior to Starship technologically. Um, I think LOX methane makes a huge amount of sense for first stages, but not for second stages. And I think um, ceramic heat shields don't make good sense if you want real quick turnaround and low cost and safety for people. You know, and, and, but the, the cool thing about it is that Elon Musk is a vastly agile, brilliant engineer. And I'm convinced that they're gonna get rid of the ceramic heat shields and the flip turns before they launch a thousand people into space. So you had mentioned how you also get excited about the moon and I, well, actually I, I wanna take this in, in two particular directions. One is very early on, you said, hey, our, our first version of Honeybee will be able to go out, get a, you know, wrap and, you know, go to, you know, and wrap a thousand metric ton asteroid, apply this concentrated sunlight to zap it into bits, collect the volatiles of which you'd have on the order of a uh, um, hundred uh, metric tons, I think you said of water and then bring that back using the omnivore engine to refuel others. 
give give us a sense of like how how you know what's the diameter of a thousand metric ton asteroid and then when you talk about queen bee what are the same figures for the queen bee sure so um yeah so you, you throw around a number like a hundred tons and people you know i'm going to bring back a hundred tons of water and they say oh my gosh that's so huge it's i can't believe it so a typical backyard swimming pool has 200 tons of water a typical single family dwelling you know let's say you have a split level ranch house is the size of a thousand ton asteroid so the honeybee vehicle is the size of a, in terms of mass, and mass is about as much as a really big Ford pickup truck, maybe a cyber truck. So what we're talking about, what we're talking about is modest scale engineering. We're talking about launching a spacecraft, approximately the mass of a cyber truck out to a, an asteroid approximately the size of a house and then with and then using an inflatable structure and the reason we use inflatables is because they're really mass efficient and, and high and they're very mass efficient in space um, to enclose the asteroid now we've always thought that anyone who's seriously considering asteroid mining without enclosing the entire asteroid doesn't understand asteroid dynamics and the, the recent sample grab from OSIRIS-REx proves this. They went to, to go land on the asteroid and the spacecraft sank you know, meters into the surface and blew up a cloud of dust, which is exactly what we would predict. So what we do is we open the, by the way, there's a video of a subscale device that we've tested on our website if you go to www.transastrocorp.com, go to the video gallery, you can see a test article of an inflatable capture bag. We're actually working with the biggest zipper manufacturer in the world, YKK. We have a robotic zipper that closes and seals the bag. It's pretty cool. Um, but um, the capture bag, basically it opens up. It's a big mouth, if you will. Um, the spacecraft matches rotation with the asteroid, flies the bag over the asteroid, then closes the bag over the asteroid without significant content. Then it cinches the bag down using cables. Um, and then we introduce the highly concentrated sunlight into the bag. And we've done dozens of experiments on this at our optical mining test bed, showing that the highly concentrated sunlight excavates the surface and heats the particles enough to cause them to release their volatile material. And then we have means of um, capturing the gases that are evolved into the bag, um, into a secondary bag, excuse me. We have means of capturing the gases that are evolved into the primary bag, into a secondary bag where they're cryotrapped at low temperatures um, as ice. And then um, 100 tons of ice fills a secondary bag that's about five meters in diameter. And that secondary bag only weighs about 200 kilograms because it's made of a thin film. And um, it's okay if it gets hit, hit by micrometeors because 
it's not storing a liquid, it's storing a solid, it's very cold. And then we bring that, that ice back to the earth and we, and we do have engineering approaches to actually taking some of that ice, vaporizing it, feeding it to the omnivore engine. And so we're using the harvested propellant to actually bring the rest of the propellant back to the earth. Um, we're how planning much, on- How much makes it back? Um, my good friend, Professor Robert Jedeke, um just made a brilliant technical presentation about that uh, this week at the Space Resources Roundtable, uh, where we've actually modeled um, thousands of asteroids and modeled the whole fleet of vehicles and done detailed low thrust trajectory analysis to getting all the, figuring out when the asteroids come back, when you launch the vehicles, how long it takes for them to catch up to the asteroid, how long they're at the asteroid for the mining operations and the return. And what we find is that on average, it takes about 40% of the propellant to bring the rest of the propellant back with the omnivore thruster. So the other direction you talked about in stepping stones, the, the value of, uh, of water ice on the moon, and I wanted you to talk a little bit about your, uh, your work for NIAC on Sunflower, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, so we, we are just really thrilled. Well, first of all, I should say that, you know, I've been incredibly honored by NASA, who has actually awarded me six NIAC fellows, fellowships. And um, we've been very successful. I think our total NIAC contracts and grants are, are over three, I'd have to look up the exact numbers, are over $3 million though. Um, and um, we have a collaboration going with Blue Origin, uh, looking at the lunar propellant mining outpost architecture. And there are two key aspects of the lunar propellant mining outpost architecture. One is a system that we call Sunflower. So, like so many innovations, this is, oh, by the way, to innovate, you also need to be ad, agile. It's not just in development. Um, you have to be willing to have stupid ideas and you have to be willing to be wrong. And I have a lot of stupid wrong ideas that then lead to decent ideas that other people help me turn into decent ideas. Um, but I had this fairly dumb idea, which was, what if we found a small crater near the lunar pole it was maybe a kilometer across and it had a permanent, a PSR, permanently shadowed region with lots of ice frozen at the bottom of the crater. Well, if it was a small enough crater, um, what we could do is we could put a tower in the middle of the crater and the tower would peak up above the crater rim and it would see sun and we could put a solar panel at the top of the tower. So we engaged with the planetary community and there's, there was a, a brilliant postdoc at University of Central Florida and Kevin Cannon, and he looked at it and he said, you know, the problem with small craters is that the, the, the topography is really bad inside of a small crater. There's nowhere to put an outpost. Um, but we started, we had started working on the problem. And so I was looking around for how could you build a really tall tower on the moon? And I've known for a long time that there are mathematical theorems developed by my friend Professor Robert Skelton, who has professorships 
at the University of San Diego, University, University of California at San Diego, and also at Texas A&M. And he wrote the book on tensegrity structures and the theory thereof. And he proved mathematically that tensegrity structures are the most efficient type of structure. It's a type of structure that has cables in tension and bars in compression that can fold up and deploy. Originally invented, invented by Buckminster Fuller. So I knew that tensegrity structures were theoretically the most efficient structure. So, so I said, well, you know, on the moon, you don't have atmosphere and you have 16G roughly. So how tall of a tower can you build on the moon? So I engaged with Skelton's group and, um, and Skelton and his colleague, uh, Manaranjan Maji, who's a professor there, did, did the calculations for, it, for us and showed that you can actually build tensegrity towers on the moon that are self-deploying that are up to a mile high. So this saved my bacon from my dumb idea because you don't have to be in a crater, it doesn't have to be a small crater. So then what we did working with the University of Central Florida, um, uh, Kevin did the work of modeling this diurnal variation of sunlight angles uh, over the whole lunar surface and found lots of places where if you build a kilometer tall tower, the top of the tower is essentially in perpetual sun and the bottom of the tower can be in or near a PSR where there's ice. And then one day I did a Homer Simpson duh and realized that it doesn't make any sense to put a solar panel at the top of the tower. Thin film solar reflectors weigh a lot less than solar panels. So you put a solar reflector on a heliostat at the top of the tower and you reflect the sunlight down to the base. And we showed that you could launch a one megawatt sunflower with a one megawatt solar array. And we just, we just use the performance parameters of the Megaflex, which is a commercial solar array, um, and showed that you could launch it in a single launch on a new Glen. And um, we made a presentation about that um, at a NIAC symposium. And, uh, the most senior management at Blue Origin saw it and was complimentary about it. And, um, and that resulted in a partnership that we have. I think technically the word is not partnership. We have a, a memorandum of understanding and we have mutual, we have multiple small mutual activities going back and forth between the two companies, Blue Origin and Transaction. So just, just to, you know, dramatize this a bit, right? I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, the guidance out of the last White House was for some type of uh, nuclear capability on the poles that was that was in the tens of kilowatts, and you're talking about a megawatt, you know. So that that's a fairly substantial difference in level. And like, what can you do with a megawatt that you couldn't do with forty or seventy kilowatts? What you can do with megawatts of power on the moon is harvest thousands of tons of water and turn it into LOX hydrogen. And that's a big deal if you're gonna to try to build an outpost with hundreds of people on it, which is what the goal is. And to have that outpost evolve to become a hotel and then later a village and then a city. And um, so there's a, NASA has wisely set up an organization called the Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium. 
run out of Johns Hopkins. And um, there have been various different workshops and meetings there. And one of the things that was very clear is that the scale of operations that organizations like TransAstra, Blue Origin, and SpaceX are thinking about is radically different than the scale of operations that NASA is thinking about. Um, uh, SpaceX is thinking, you know, an outpost with a, at least a thousand people as a as a waypoint for their ambitions to go to Mars, and um, you know, and TransAstra, you know, has always thought in terms of circa 150 people to get to a critical mass where that you can then start commercial operations, where it really should be a commercial outpost on the, on the moon, that various different scientific organizations, some government funded, some private sector funded, pay to do science, and where um, people go recreationally. Um, a lot of folks poo-poo recreational space travel as not a serious endeavor. Let's just say, Space travel that's not done, that's done for the elective person of a person who wants, for the elective reasons of a person who wants to go there. Sort of like nobody put a gun to the pilgrim's head and said that they had to come to the new world. They went there because they wanted to. So, um, you know, this is people exercising their free right of travel to go places. It's It's become clear to me that Whichever side of the whichever side or position a person holds in the political spectrum today, the one thing we can all agree on is that it's kind of nasty. And groups want to get get away from the other people. And I actually I think that a desire to get away from nuttiness, whatever you refer, what whatever you consider that to be, and it's typically the other team, that's actually going to be the thing that really motivates massive human, human movement into space. But then those folks who go there will have to have some way to make money to survive. And so architectures that allow them to produce goods and services that are returned to the earth are the architectures that will win in the long run. And that's why I think the moon and the asteroids are the way to go. We're gonna build settlements in space that return goods and services to the earth. So, let's, so anyway, let's just a little bit more about sunflower. Yeah. So, so we showed that you could launch a sunflower in orbit on New Glenn. We started working with Blue Origin. They have other partners that have other aspects of their transportation network. And so the, the current concept, which is evolving, is that we launch it into space on the New Glenn and then other aspects of the transportation architecture possibly launched on other vehicles carry it and land it to the moon on a bespoke lander, which would be a blue origin lander. And then that land that lander would, for that mission would work in an expendable mode and it would become the platform of the sunflower. Um, but we've also looked at smaller sunflowers. It makes a lot of sense. And what's really cool is I was also wrong about tensegrity being the most efficient structural type. We've subsequently done detailed theoretical analysis and shown that thin film inflatable towers actually outperform tensegrity. Um, if you go to our website, you can see um, tests that we've done of, of tensegrity towers, engineering model tests under NASA funding. 
I think people, if they check out the, the gallery, they'll love it. It's I'm really proud of the, the team that does the work and the team that posted on the website. Um, uh, but we've shown that inflatable towers actually outperform tensegrity towers, even when you consider all the leakage that you have for micrometeor impacts and that sort of thing. And that an inflatable tower, you can actually build inflatable towers more than 10 kilometers tall on the moon. So in vast areas of the lunar poles, you can build inflatable towers that go up to the point where they're constant, the top of the tower is constantly in communications with the earth and in constant sunlight. So we think that's super important because it obviates the need for GPS constellations and satellite constellations on the moon. And we actually think it might make sense to build a mega tower on the moon and put a station at the top of the mega tower. And the reason that's cool is because your landers can land at the top of the mega tower. And then you can use an elevator to get up and down from the surface of the moon. Um, uh, and basically have a space station that just hovers over the surface for constant communication, constant navigation, constant support to operations and powering operations all over the lunar poles. So we think that's kind of a, a, a mega idea, not a short-term business prospect, but a pretty cool idea. In terms of short-term business prospects, towers of 100 meters to 200 meters made with inflatables are beautiful comm platforms to support Artemis base. A near-term uh, system to support NASA, which we would propose to do on a public-private partnership. Um, modest and realistic. So this is, a, this is a theme that you'll see at Transastra. We're very practical short-term engineers, but our short-term engineering is always tied to a long-term vision that excites the heck out of the workforce. By the way, the thing about the workforce at Transastra is I've never seen an engineering workforce as happy as they are. Because when they come to work in the morning, they know they're gonna be given really hard but possible technical problems. They know that if they try hard and fail, which they do all the time, they'll be rewarded for it. And they know that there will be no bureaucracy and no BS. And that, like, that is what you do to make the happiest engineering workforce in the world. And I tell you what, I walk into the lab every day and there's a palpable happiness that just, it's like, it's like taking a forest bath in happiness, seeing how excited the engineering team is. Let's switch levels now and talk a bit about nations. So you had mentioned early on that it matters to you whether or not someone who controls the vast access to this or controls access to this vast wealth is a democracy and cares about freedom and cares about free markets. Where do you think uh, that US space primacy is in jeopardy? And if so, from who? Where, where do we stand at this present moment? Well, if you take this, the question, do you think US blank primacy is in jeopardy and fill in anything in the blank? The answer is yes. Um, you know, for the latter half of the 20th century and into the early 21st century, the US had primacy in global culture, global technology, in, in virtually every technology 
know, the number of Nobel Prizes that the U.S. had, you know, I don't know the exact statistics, but, you know, a quick Wikipedia search will probably show that the U.S. had more Nobel Prizes than all the other countries of the world combined. Um, you know, I think the Wikipedia will show that um, the U.S. had more gold medals in the Olympics from Los Angeles than most European countries. Okay, so, but U.S. primacy is by no means guaranteed. And countries go through cycles. And, you know, Rome had primacy over the Western world for hundreds of years, and then it ended. And that which was Rome evolved into other things like England and the United States. Um, Yes, U.S. primacy is in jeopardy. We've lost our way as a country. Um, is it recoverable? Only time will tell. Um, I think the greatest prospect of the U.S. maintaining its role as an economic, cultural, and military superpower is space. But it is by no means guaranteed. Um, the reason it's important for me that the United States maintain primacy is because as flawed and imperfect, imperfect as we are, I really do believe that the United States is the greatest country that ever existed. Um, even with all the flaws that people love to point out. One of the great things about our country is that people can point out our flaws. Um, and the most important thing is basic human dignity and the idea that each of us has basic human rights, freedom of speech. You know, it's been a long fight, but um, um, universal suffrage, permission to speak, um, the freedom to start a business in order to pursue your own happiness. Um, these are really fundamental and important. And the idea that then the reason China is a significant threat is because they have developed a system that may be more efficient, which is it takes the most efficient aspects of capitalism and it puts a layer of tyranny in there that allows the government it's, it's basically, you know, when capitalism doesn't work well in the United States, it's crony capitalism, where big businesses are in bed with the government, you know, sort of in the way that we talked about previously in this conversation, and in other ways where they manipulate regulations and that sort of thing. But China is a crony capitalist entity. And, um, you know, Hong Kong traditionally it was one of the most vibrant economies in the world. And economists will tell you that it's because of the economic and cultural freedom that the place offered. And China has shown that they don't, they don't, they, they'll violate their treaties. They'll, they'll abrogate people's right to free assembly, free speech, and they do not have universal suffrage. Um, they enslave people and put them into factories to help oligarchs get rich. It's very efficient, very 
evil system, in my opinion. They're very good at stealing our technology. And recently, they've been shown that they're capable of leapfrogging us. So it's a serious threat. And the most important thing that the Space Force and NASA can do is to fully embrace the private sector approach, collaborate with the private sector investment community, embrace public-private partnership, um, and make sure that we stay ahead. So, you know, obviously many people uh, have difficulty trying to adjudicate between the sort of stunning success of the, of the, the Chinese state-run machine, particularly in technology and space, versus the tremendous vibrancy of our private sector. And of course, as you put it, there's this mediating factor of, of policy. So, you know, how do you assess sort of the, the current state of, of where we stand, particularly in space of, of our whole of nation space efforts versus their whole of nation space efforts? So it seems clear to me that if our whole of nation space effort limits itself to traditional NASA, NRO, and Air Force type contracting. The Chinese will absolutely eclipse us. Um, the Space Council under Scott Pace and Mike Pence was very efficient and effective. I would love to see that continued. Um, I'm not, I, you know, when someone talks about whole of nation type approach, it sounds a little bit to me like a Kremlin type approach, top down central planning. The biggest strength we have over China is that we don't do that. Um, so there are certain things that only government can do, right? Um, plan national defense, you know, war fighting law enforcement, those things have to be done by the government. Um, I'd like to see everything else done by the private sector with proper regulation. Um, I'd love to be a libertarian, but I recognize that proper and healthy regulation that creates a level playing field and gives everyone access to the commons, everyone equal access to the commons is very important. And you know that's what the whole of nation should be. Um, the resources of the asteroids and the moon are so important to controlling, um, you know, controlling the resources of the asteroid and the, and the moon are so important to commercial operations in space that they are very critical to the future of our country. Um, the space is the high ground uh, from a military perspective. Um, in the 20th century, there were times when the government was ahead of the private sector technologically, you know, in the development of rockets, in the development of supersonic airplanes, um, initial developments of high-speed electronics, CCD cameras, those kinds of things. Com the best computers came from the government. 
that's not true anymore. And so the government really needs to figure out how to, how to utilize the innovation and energy of the private sector and the cost effectiveness of the private sector to stay ahead. Um, the situation we have with China strategically is very different than the situation that we had with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. During the Cold War, you had the United States with a more vibrant economy growing at a faster rate, spending a smaller fraction of its GDP on defense, whereas the Soviet Union you know, had a very inefficient, corrupt command and control economy growing at a slow rate, spending a huge fraction of its GDP on defense. And so all the United States had to do to bring the Soviet Union to its knees is to continue to grow economically, spending fairly modestly on a historical level, you know, 3% of GDP, 3.5% of GDP on defense. And, and the Soviet Union just knew that they couldn't compete. And they eventually collapsed under the attempt. Well, the situation with China is exactly the reverse. They're growing faster than we are. They're spending a smaller fraction of their GDP on defense. Their defense spending is much more efficient than ours because of their, um, their advantage in purchase power parity. And, and um, uh, so if we try to compete with China the way that we did with the Soviet Union, we will lose. The only approach is to out-innovate them and to, um, to learn to work with the private sector in more efficient ways. But you, know, you referred to the stepping stone study where we showed that private sector approaches are typically 10 times more effective than traditional government approaches. Without that 10 times benefit and productivity, we're gonna lose. Well, that's a wonderfully stark way to put it. So I wanted to ask though, you know, a, sort of a series of re related questions. The first is, okay, so there's clear evidence that companies like yours are, are focused on lunar and asteroid resources. Do we see any evidence that China has any interest in these as well? Uh that's not really a question I'm qualified to answer. Um, you know, obviously China has put landers, put a lander on the far side of the moon and put a lander on Mars. Putting a lander on Mars is a pretty tricky technical operation. Um, the fact that they pulled that off on the first try should give people pause. Um, I don't know about their, I don't know the details of their um, ambitions with regard to asteroids. I have read things in the press that they essentially said that they would treat their lunar ambitions in the same, same way they treat their island building ambitions in the ocean, which is they've essentially built islands in international water and then said that it's their territory and claimed international water as their territory. So that's a colonial behavior. That's something that, you know, anyone who's an anti-colonialist should be very concerned about. So I would be concerned about them bringing that same colonial perspective to space. So let's talk about 
what that could mean and, and why that should be concerning to, uh, to U.S. citizen. I, I guess the first thing, when you've talked about the scale of space resources in terms of population, that it could support trillions of people, that it could be a thousand times the, the area of Earth, but in, in terms of wealth, right? And you talked about the United States not growing fast enough. Does space resources offer the potential for wealth to be able to offset and make a difference in nation-to-nation -nation so, struggle? So it's my opinion that it does. Um, but I, uh, so I, so I've offered one, one thing that I, I try to do is separate my opinions from my thought. My, my, my opinions that are based on gut feeling and intuition compared to my opinions that are based on careful technical analysis. So if you look at our technical work and assertions that I make about you know, a study that we've done or a piece of hardware that we built, those opinions are based on analysis and they're inside the domain of my expertise. If you ask me questions like that, I have opinions, but they're less rigorously formed. Um, it's been pointed out that when we start mining asteroids for precious metals and bringing them back to the earth, the supply of certain precious metals will far outstrip the supply that's been available from terrestrial mines. And that will um, fundamentally change the metals markets on the earth. Whatever country does that first will be in the cat seat with regard to many aspects of the global economy. So I think it's pretty important. Are you able to put any kind of dollar figure? Like how much are the asteroids worth? What is the asteroid belt worth? And how do you compare <laughs> that to, to terrestrial? One metal asteroid is worth millions of times all the mineral wealth that's ever been harvested from the earth. And there are billions of them. So you, it's really too big of a question to even ponder. Um, so right now they're not worth anything because we don't have the transportation architecture. So, so, so that statement that I just made is based on the assumption that we figure out how to mine them and bring the materials back. So there are thousands of asteroids in low delta V, highly Earth-like orbits around the Earth. The technologies that Transaster is working on, and frankly, the, the in-space transportation technologies that other companies are working on, you know, like Blue Origin, Stoke, Relativity, Rocket Lab, SpaceX. Um, I think many of the leaders of those companies haven't realized the importance of reusable in-space transport. But they're, they're looking at it as a relatively short-term business opportunity, which is super great. But once you can get around in space and have propulsion systems that are capable of delta Vs of up to several kilometers per second, such that you can get to and from the asteroids. And if it's a fully reusable vehicle, and you're starting to get costs that are approaching cost of air transport, um, then 
you know, there are whole asteroids that the concentrations of platinum group metals are typical of high-grade ores. Uh, so um, bringing back those asteroids is a huge economic game changer. You know, remember an airliner pushing through the atmosphere from LA to Tokyo has a delta V of 19 or 20 kilometers per second. The energies that we're talking about, you know, most engineers really haven't gotten their heads around the fact that spacecraft are simpler than airplanes. And the energies are not higher. It's only the velocities that are higher. And velocity in space in terms of wear and tear on the vehicle means nothing. So there's no reason why in-space transportation has to be tremendously ex expensive. I think Elon's ambition to build a city on Mars is economically completely realistic. I think you can, I think the Starship is a sufficient design that you can get to the point where for a million bucks, you can drop someone off on Mars. And that in, in a handful of years, um, the question is why would you wanna go all the way to Mars to do that? It's kind of a nasty place, but um, um, if you can go to Mars for those costs, you can go to the asteroids for those costs. And when you're doing that, then the economic potential is really disruptive. So now let's let's consider the reverse case. So what are the, the costs and consequences of seeding leadership in, in space logistics and space resources to a rival power that does not share these values of democracy, freedom, and free markets that you outlined? Well, you know, again, I'm not a space, I'm not a, although I am a kind of a fanatical reader of history and I love it. And I certainly, you know, have studied it both a little bit academically in my career. I'm not an expert on it, but it seems clear to me that um, there would be no interest in granting additional human rights by a country that was dominating the globe that doesn't grant them human rights now. And so you get into a situation where there's a global hegemony, hegemony by a country that really doesn't value human dignity and human rights. If you're um, a liberal of the enlightenment, any liberal-minded person should be deeply offended by that. So then let's, let's consider what must be done. So in your view, what is a space, agenda, a space agenda worthy of our nation? Well, I think we've talked about it several different ways during this podcast. Um, let's, uh, first of all, I don't think it's about vast increases in funding. You know, NASA has a, a budget of more than $20 billion a year. That ought to be enough. Let's spend it efficiently. Um, but the, Pete, the problem that we have here is um, in, the, in the spirit of real politics, many 
sort of experts in efficiency have looked at NASA over the decades and said, NASA has too many centers and too many government service employees. And every time a NASA director or a space leader has said, we need to get rid of centers so that we can be more efficient, they've been told that that's a career ending move and it's stopped. You know, Dan Golden tried it um, and others have too. Um, in the Department of Defense, there were too many bases, so they had the Base Closure Commission, which was a, but the problem is, you know, um, the problem is worse in NASA because there aren't so many NASA facilities that you can close them over time and use statistics on your side. So too many NASA centers, too many government service employees, too many traditional contracts, but those traditional contracts are what brings the the budget to NASA due to the, we talked about it earlier in this call, due to the, um, you know, the bringing home the bacon that, that politicians do. So it's a very tough thing to break. You know, you'd love it if you could get enlightened politicians who, who, who look in the best picture of the country as a whole, rather than from the perspective of their district. All right, but of course, you know. But you know, it's not all bad. So let me just say, most of the money in NASA is spent in, spent on really important projects inefficiently. Some of the money in NASA is spent on really important projects efficiently. And that small fraction of the NASA budget fully justifies the NASA budget. It's just, you know, if you're, like there, there is almost no one I know in NASA who actually thinks SLS and Orion are the right thing to do and are being executed well in, in private. They're just not willing to say it in public because it's if a career ending move. So let, let's just stop on NASA for a minute. If, if you had the ability, you know, in, in the ideal world to sort of specify for NASA both their goals and, and at least certain certain parameters and means, uh, you know, how, how, would, uh, how would what NASA's doing look different? So, you know, I would go back to say, we need to put people on the moon by 2028. We need a plan for an, a lunar outpost that grows to 100 people over a five-year period after that. And any company that wants to participate has to co-invest. You know, I mean, imagine a company that's getting billions and billions of dollars to build a rocket. And they're not willing to co-invest. And there's another, there are other multiple companies that are, that are funding most of the development of superior rockets. How can you, as a government servant or as an engineer or as a citizen, stand by and say that's okay? So, you know, NASA should say it's a level playing field. There, we, we now see that the private sector is building rockets with its own money. Nobody gets to build a rocket for NASA unless they put in at least 30% of the funds. 
All right. NASA is not the only game in town. What about uh, Department of Commerce and FAA? What do you see as their their roles and uh, what's their tasking in a in a world to to get to the exciting vision you've outlined? I'm I'm I think um, I think the my view is that the FAA does a pretty good job with launch certification, um, and so I don't see a problem with their approach right now. I'm not an expert on that. And as far as commerce goes, um, you know, make sure that there isn't corruption. Make sure that there aren't, um, yeah, just make sure the process is fair and balanced. Uh, that the, make sure that the process is fair, that people know the rules and they're following the rules. So then we now have uh, fairly recently a US Space Command and a US Space Force what do you see their roles in this future you've outlined? Um, wherever humanity goes, if they have ships, the ships will have to have brigs. Cruise ships have brigs. You know, people break the law and do crime on cruise ships and they're thrown in the brig. There's gonna have to be law enforcement in space as humans start to get active. Um, we have state actors and quasi-state actors hacking computer systems all over the world, private sector and government. That's certainly gonna happen in space. If they're willing to do it with cyber attacks, they'll be willing to do it with physical attack. Um, There will be need for rescue in space. So functions like the Coast Guard, functions. So I think I'd like the Space Force to, you know, I, I would have preferred that it be called the Space Guard rather than the Space Force. Um, I'd like it to be very clearly a defensive capability. Um, advertised as a defensive capability to make sure that treaties are followed and proper private sector commercial ventures are allowed to operate and scientific ventures are not harassed. And US defense assets like um, observation satellites and communication satellites are defended um, of course, calm and observation from Earth orbit, the idea of building exquisite, pure Department of Defense systems to do that, I think is obsolete. I think with proliferated LEO and 100,000 satellites in LEO, um, one of the technical evolutions that's gonna happen over the course of the 2020s, as we get to the point where systems like the Amazon system and uh, or the Kuiper constellation, Starlink, OneWeb, and there'll be other networks come into play, the internet back backbone will move into low Earth orbit. When the internet backbone moves into low Earth orbit and you have thousands of satellites up there and each one has a nadir deck, the amount of, it, you'll be able to put remote sensing platforms on those satellites 
to generate a quantity of data that would that that will stagger the imagination in terms of building situational awareness of the earth. Um, as that happens, the 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 global private sector economy will make space into a constant sense-making system where we'll have more um, practical sort of tactical and strategic knowledge about what's going on on the earth globally at all times such that if someone were to build a spy satellite it would be a waste of money we'll know everything that's it'll be possible to tap into that internet in the sky to know everything about what's going on the earth everywhere you'll you'll know immediately if a house is on fire in a city in a country far far away if you want to um, what then do you see as the future of the national reconnaissance organization it should be tapping in so and nro and and uh the national geospatial organizations should be tapping into commercial networks. Do they uh, remain independent or do you see them getting folded under the Space Force? I don't know. I don't know what the most efficient way to do that is. So I wanted to ask, you laid out such a plethora of, of roles and, and, uh, and a diversity of functions that the, that the future Space Force may grow into that it doesn't do today. What about uh, planetary defense against asteroids and comets? Who, who do you think ought to have that role? Is that a Space Force or U.S. Space Command job? And how, how does the sort of things that Transastra is pioneering make that more or less a possibility for humanity? Well, we, we have a technology that we're extremely excited about for space situational awareness, for understanding what's going on in space called the Sutter Telescope Survey. And we're super excited that NASA has recently provided us a grant to build a technology demonstrator of the Sutter Telescope here on the ground. So um, we have hardware coming together right now in the lab on Sutter. Sutter is based on a series of innovations that each in themselves is not that unique and powerful, but when you put them together, will allow us to discover every year 350 times more asteroids, discover and track 350 times more asteroids than have been discovered in the entire history of astronomy. Uh, that's with the Sutter Survey Space Telescope Network um, that, um, hopefully the ground demonstration that we're doing now will, will allow us to start working towards building that network. We're building Sutter. Sutter is named after Sutter's Mill, where gold was discovered in California, with the idea that it'll, it'll discover so many asteroids that'll be like the discovery of gold in California and lead to a gold rush in space. Um, Sutter will also revolutionize sensing for planetary defense. Um, the, the risk of a major asteroid impact really doing a number on human civilization is quite modest. Um, 
the risk of a major asteroids hitting a city and taking out a city is not negligible. It's a serious risk. It's one that we should take seriously. Um, however, nobody should go outside with an umbrella being concerned that they're going to be hit by an asteroid on any particular day. Um, it, it, I've advocated for many years that the government have a series of plans in place with, with um, contract vehicles and possibly hardware standing by to move quickly based on different observational scenarios of incoming uh, comets or asteroids. I don't know how mature those plans are, um, but it's the sort of thing that needs to be wargamed. Um, wargaming is a process that is used in the Department of Defense to run through potential future scenarios to figure out the best strategies and outcomes. And so we should be wargaming these. NASA doesn't have the skill set to do wargaming. On the basis of those wargaming games, we should be putting in place the observational networks and the response networks so that we can deal with an exoplanetary threat of a comet or an asteroid. Um, one thing that's really cool about Transastra's approach is, and I'm hoping that we can actually post Professor Jedeke's recently recent talk on this uh, from the Space Resources Roundtable so that people can see it. Um, but what we plan to do is build a fleet of about a dozen asteroid mining vehicles. Um, and they'd be launched at, at the rate of about one a month. And they'd be essentially parked high in the Earth-Moon gravity well. Um, and once we get the Sutter observational network up and running, we anticipate um, observing a new mineable asteroid target about once a month. So the asteroid mining vehicles will be pre-positioned pre for what we know statistically will be the discovery rate. And then as we discover and use remote sensing to prospect an asteroid, a vehicle is sent off after that asteroid. Um, um, the Sutter observation network will give a couple of weeks warning for any big bad boys that come through that are really threatening. You can do a lot in a couple of weeks uh, with potentially things like nuclear weapons launched against them. Um, but our asteroid mining network would be, could be used to deflect asteroids also. Basically, um, you have a big inflatable bag on a vehicle that's massive enough to deflect a good size size asteroid. So, um, uh, so we're not like terrified about asteroid impacts. We think it's something that, you know, humanity should be concerned about pandemics. Humanity should be concerned about um, malevolent AIs or AIs that accidentally get out of control. Humanities should be concerned about cybersecurity. Humanities should be concerned about bioweapons. Humanities should be concerned about chemical weapons. Humanities should be concerned about asteroid impacts. By the way, another space danger that humanity should be concerned about, maybe more than asteroid impacts, are significant outlier um, coronal mass ejections, solar storms. 
and what they could do to global um, power and communication networks, I think is more likely and more concerning than asteroids to me. So I'd like to see um, a more robust um, solar observation system. Um, and I'd like to see um, real work done on hardening the power grid and the communications grid and satellites against that. Do you see that uh, solar observation system as being something that ought to reside with the Department of Defense or ought to reside somewhere else? Now that, that you could make a good argument that it's like weather forecasting should, should probably reside with an entity like NASA or NOAA. Um, but the response and the, so, and the regulation of what to do about it should be, should involve multiple government departments. Would, are you willing to say more about what makes your Sutter telescope system uh, so novel? What are, what are the technical innovations that allow as much higher rate of discovery and presumably of smaller objects as well? Sure, it's, um, it's four or five key technical innovations brought together in the unique architecture. Um, the first one is real-time shift and add processing. Um, it's basically um, a digital processing approach that uh, makes it much easier to find dark moving objects in space. So to explain what this is about, um, if you want to image something that's very dark and faint in space, what you do is you point your telescope at deep space and stare for a long period of time. So if there's a galaxy out there that you want to get the structure of, Hubble does this all the time. Uh, lots of telescopes do this all the time. You take very, very long exposures and you build up photons over a very long period of time. If you're trying to find a dark moving object in space, that doesn't work because the dark moving object moves between from pixel to pixel to pixel to pixel during your long exposure. So instead, astronomers have invented a whole class of techniques called shift and add techniques, where what you do is you read out the individual pixels on a periodic basis. And as you're reading out the pixels, you, you or, or Typically shift and add techniques are done what's called post facto. So they read out all the pixels and they read it into a big data file. And then they look at all the places where photons were counted in the different pixels. And they look to see if there were objects moving through the field and they add them up after the fact, okay? So real time shift and add means you're, you're reading these out real time. And as you're putting the pixel counts or the photon counts from each pixel into memory, you have something akin to a graphics processor, which could be, um, which could be um, uh, something like a vertex, um, or it could be a, um, a GPU. Um, and with, S, with CMOS detectors, which are the type of detectors that are in um, mobile phones, for example, you can do the readout fairly often. And with modern GPUs, it should be theoretically possible to do it real time. Strangely enough, that has never been demonstrated. It's never been demonstrated in a form factor that you could fly in space. So when we proposed this in the past, 
the science community's reaction is, well, we know shift and add works, but we don't believe you can do it for asteroids real time. Even though thousands of main belt asteroids have been discovered this way with post facto analysis. So we, we have a code written by Pete Gorell, who is uh, the PI of our NIAC phase two in this area, which will run on a GPU on a regular laptop that uh, all of the metrics and the tests of the code say it'll run real time. So that's innovation number one. We think it can be packaged into a small satellite form factor. Innovation number two is, um, We've come up with an observation pattern, a type of compound telescope, where we, you take a large number of telescopes and you preposition them relative to each other in terms of where they're looking in, in the sky to form either a push broom or a cross in space. And then if you put that together with a shift and add, by the way, the, the particular algorithm that Pete has written on shift and add is called match filter filter tracking. And Pete deserves a lot of credit for his pioneering work in that area. Um, so, so shift and add using match filter tracking is innovation number one. Innovation number two is building a compound telescope in place of a single telescope. So the issue here is that every time you increase the size of an aperture on a telescope that gets launched into space, Every time you increase the size of the aperture by a factor of 10, say from, from going from say a 30 centimeter aperture to a three meter aperture, the cost and mass of the telescope goes up by a factor of a thousand. But if instead you could build, now the, the, the aperture of a three meter telescope is a hundred times the aperture of a 30 centimeter telescope. So the cost and mass has gone up by a factor of a thousand, but the, um, the, the amount of area has only gone up by a factor of 100. So if instead you keep the telescopes at the 30 centimeter level, you get an order of magnitude more bang for your buck in terms of observation power. So um, we've designed at the conceptual level, a spacecraft that can carry 130 centimeter apertures. And you can launch three of those spacecraft on a single Falcon 9. Okay, now there's something magic about the 30 centimeter level. And that is there's lots of COTS, commercial off the shelf components that work well in commercial 30 centimeter telescopes. If you're gonna build 300 of them, you can use manufacturing processes to make them a lot less expensive. So match filter tracking gives you about two orders of magnitude improvement in the number of asteroids you can find. Going to this compound telescope approach gives you another order of magnitude. And then once you have the compound telescope, you can fix each of the telescopes in terms of where they look in space relative to each other to make either a push broom or a cross. And you can either sweep the push broom or rotate the cross. And if you time the sweep or rotation period to the amount of time it takes the asteroid to go through the full field of regard, then the effective observation power of that compound telescope is as though the full field of regard was filled with apertures. And that gives you another order of magnitude in performance. Then the last thing that we do is we, we have a very innovative mission design that we call pseudo-geocentric orbit. What these are is elliptical orbits around the sun 
that are slightly elliptical, such that the satellites circle the Earth at a distance of about 8 million kilometers in, a ret in an apparent retrograde orbit. So it's, this is outside of the Earth's sphere of influence in heliocentric space, but it causes them to rotate around the Earth in such a way that they're optimally positioned. There's always one of the telescopes optimally positioned to find asteroids approaching the Earth. So that's the set of innovations together that give um, between four and six order of magnitude improvement in the number of asteroids that you could find. That's very exciting. And your comment about building things in mass using industrial processes brings me back to something that I had wanted to ask earlier in the podcast, and that was uh, sort of your, your good track record on prophecy. So I was noting this week, that, uh, or I should say that you were one of the, uh, uh, both one of the members and I think one of the instigators in uh, the FAST space study that uh, was done by Air University and, and General Quast. And, you know, that sort of had, had made sort of two prediction and some two major bets, you know, one of which was on reusable launch vehicles before they'd actually been actually demonstrated uh, as something that was coming. And the other was uh, that we would have this explosion in low earth orbit and that some type of proliferated low earth command and control and observation system built upon commercial models would be a good idea. Um, and I wonder if you might just meditate a little bit on those ideas and how they've come to fruition. Well, I mean, it was a, it was a delight and an honor to get to meet Steve Quast and to work with him for years, starting in about the 2014 timeframe on concepts that became the Space Force. Uh, his initial name for it was Air Guardian. I, I would have preferred Space Guardian. Um, and, um, you know, we had many strategic sessions trying to look in the crystal ball and see what, what was going to happen in space. Um, uh, you know, my first experience with reusable launchers was in 2013, um, a government agency on the East Coast hired me through a third party contractor to consult with them to evaluate, to help with a team that was evaluating SpaceX, which is should the government buy SpaceX launch vehicles. And I went into it with a very open mind. I had met Elon in 2006 when I was doing a study for the, the DNI on future innovations. And in 2006, I said, one of the things I did was I looked at SpaceX and I, I had a wonderful opportunity to spend 90 minutes discussing the future of space and launch with him. And one of my recommendations to the DNI was get serious about new space. It's gonna happen and it's gonna change everything. Um, I also told him get serious about mobile phones. They're gonna, they're gonna be amazing compute, computing and communications and sensing devices. and it's going to change everything. Um, so um, I was delighted in 2013 to get to spend a lot of time with SpaceX, really looking at the engineering processes on the Falcon 9 development. This is when they'd had, I think when I engaged with them, they'd had like one or two launches. And there was another large quasi-governmental 
governmental organization that was evaluating them that had like 40 engineers evaluating them. And they were very negative on SpaceX. And I couldn't understand why they were so negative. I thought their engineering processes, that really what it was is a cultural difference of not understanding agile. And, it, and this government agency that had brought me in had brought me in specifically because they felt as though I could speak Silicon Valley and I, that I would be able to communicate with the SpaceX team. And you know, I got to meet this wonderful guy, John Mirator, and then uh, Hans, who was like their chief engineer at the time, and um, uh, several other, other senior people. I came away from the experience saying, not only should the government buy SpaceX launch vehicles, you should do everything you can to encourage this and try to proliferate other companies like this with similar engineering methods. I, I, and I, you know, I really appreciate the time that SpaceX gave me and the others that I was working with at that time. It was a lot of fun and fascinating, really opened my eyes. So that's why I was, and, and that's why, that's part of the reason why I was in a position to help um, the great Steve Quast in his work. And, you know, it was his leadership, in my view, that led to fast space and um, and I think it had a profound effect on starting the Space Force. I mean, like, could any, could you really consider with all the exciting things that are coming in space for the United States not have the equivalent of the Coast Guard? It would be, it would be um, malfeasance at the level of states, statesmanship. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that all coming together. Indeed. So let's tie things up by talking about policy and legislation. So are there things that our presidential administration ought to say in a policy or executive order that has not been said that will properly galvanize the sorts of relationships and goals that you've set forward? You know, I don't think it's about what the government says. I think it's about what the government does. And, um, you know, when big government contractors spend billions of dollars to deliver very little, they shouldn't be rewarded with more money. And, um, you know, who you appoint, you know, like, I would love to see someone like Steve Quast as the NASA administrator or, or the associate administrator for human spaceflight. Um, someone who understands how to get things done inside the beltway, but also the private sector. Um, I get really worried when you see old school politicians that were part of the problem being put into key positions. Um, so, you know, you know, in terms of, in terms of executive orders, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm not a policy guy and I'm, I, I'm not sure what substantial impact they have. You say what they do and you outline a lot of things in terms of public private partnerships, making sure that the, that, you know, the, your partners have got skin in the game, but. Well, you know, I, mean, I said it makes... earlier, right? I said it earlier that there should be a policy that, um, if you're building something that's built in the private sector, like a launch vehicle for the government, you need to co-invest 30% or you don't get a penny. 
in terms of acquisition, which means developing the vehicle. And then the government should buy them on commercial terms. So the other question I had was, you know, what about just the commitment to be the anchor uh, purchaser? I mean, like, particularly for a company like yours, how big a difference is it if the United States, as the United States declares that they're willing to buy some certain amount of propellant or minerals at a particular point in, in time? I mean, how how big a market influence is it for the US government so, to so actually buy the, commodities? It's huge. So if the government said, we're gonna set up a public-private partnership to buy water in orbit, and um, we will buy a hundred tons of water at Earth Moon L2 for a billion dollars, and we'll co-invest in the development of the architecture as long as the players are also co-investing. You know, we'll co-invest, I don't know, $2 billion. We would have asteroid mining in seven years. And so that brings me, I, I think, to the, at least to the last written question, and that is, what about legislation? Do we have the legislation we need? I, obviously, we took a big step forward in saying that a company like yours, if you, uh, if you mine the water, you can own and sell that. But is there other enabling legislation, uh, either responsibilities or these approaches or things that are going to ignite? Like, it's pretty exciting to think that that, that you think we could have asteroid mining in, in seven years. And I wonder what else we could have in that kind of a short time period if things are properly structured? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not an inside the beltway guy, so I don't know about legislation. Um, you know, who you should have on your show is uh, Paul Steimers, our Paul Steimers from k &L Gates. When it comes to space legislation, he's my, my go-to guy. He's great. All right. Well, let me leave you with uh, any last words that you would want to say, and then we'll wrap up the podcast. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure, Pete. I really appreciate the opportunity to get the word out. We talked about a lot of stuff. Um, you know, we're, we're on a mission here together to help humanity become a space-faring species. And... Um, you know, and I'd like the United States to lead that process with our allies. And I'd like, you know, freedom to be fundamental and human rights to, to be fundamental to what we do in space. So it's great to get a chance to talk about it. Absolutely. That is Joel Sercell, founder and CEO of Transastra. Thank you, Joel. Hey, my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Space Strategy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. For questions and comments, please reach out at spacepod at afpc.org. Thank you for listening.